Hi, I'm Suzanne Syracuse. Welcome to my podcast focused on the future, keys to building a profitable, sustainable, and impactful business. And I'm excited to be partnering with wealthmanagement.com on this. This series will focus on what firms need to embrace to ensure their growth and success for the future. And you'll hear from industry leaders and advisors on what is working for them. I have a great lineup of guests in store, and today I'm speaking with Mike Lamina. Mike is the CEO of Wealthspire Advisors, a wealth management firm with over $25 billion in AUM and whose team consists of fiduciary advisors who value connecting all parts of a client's financial life to deliver thoughtful, collaborative strategies that optimize their finances and fulfill their aspirations. That's lovely. Love that. Welcome, Mike, and thanks for being my guest. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having me. Excited to uh, to engage today. Yep, great. Well, I always like to start out with learning a little bit more about how my guests got into the wealth management industry. So what was your journey? How did you get to where you are now? Yeah, great question. Um, a very atypical path. I, I was actually an undergraduate English major. I went to uh, school in the Midwest at the University of Notre Dame, go Irish. And when I when I first graduated, um, I was fortunate to have you know academic scholarship support to attend Notre Dame. So when I graduated, I had a desire to give back. Ultimately, that manifested with me doing a year of volunteer work as a teacher in the Bronx at Mount St. Michael Academy. So I went from an undergraduate college student to living in religious community with three religious brothers, another volunteer, taught four classes in ninth grade English, coached soccer, got involved in all, all sorts of extracurricular activity with the kids, just had an amazing year and really valued the tangible impact I was having on the lives of the students that I was fortunate to interact with. What I struggled with was in my personal experience during that year, I felt like the environment wasn't a meritocracy. And I've got aunts and uncles and siblings that have been teachers, and I have tremendous respect for what teachers do. But I worried that I wouldn't be satisfied if I was the best teacher in the building and I wasn't rewarded for that. Um, It was based upon years served, right? So I, I actually went from an unpaid volunteer teacher over the course of a weekend to a temp at Morgan Stanley, radical shift in their private wealth management business, solely looking to find an environment that I felt was more merit-based. What I actually found was an incredible industry, the wealth management space. It was dynamic. Every day was different. And I fell in love with it. I actually, my first, uh, after a couple months as a temp, I, I got a job working for one of the most successful financial advisors within Morgan Stanley's private wealth management business, pre-Dean Witter integration, got directly exposed to ultra high net worth, high net worth client interaction, really started to love the space. But after a couple of years, I had an opportunity to work with some IT developers, automate stuff that I was doing manually in Excel around portfolio analytics and composite performance. And the light bulb just went off for me that I wanted to be the person that could connect the dots between the business, operations, technology. So I actually moved from the front office side to the back office side with a lot of people scratching their heads saying, people don't do that, Mike. They they get the job in ops to ultimately get to the front office side where the money's made. Here I am working for the best, you know, probably the leading producing advisor in Morgan Stanley's private wealth management division. And I say, I'm going to go to the operations side, but I built an amazing career, 14 years at Morgan Stanley, worked with some amazingly talented people. Uh, In 2008, I had the opportunity to go to Hong Kong 
on an expat assignment. And it was transformative for me for a couple reasons. One, for the first time in my career, I was given a blank sheet of paper and asked to build the optimal platform for advisors in Asia to serve clients in multiple jurisdictions. So I was literally thrown into a foreign environment. Um, and literally, and, and literally, and you know, we were the the plan was to transform the wealth management business from a broker dealer based platform to a private banking model, rolling up to a Swiss bank they owned in in Zurich with booking centers in Singapore and. From a work standpoint, it was it was intense, working incredibly long hours, but that opportunity to be entrepreneurial, to truly have a blank sheet of paper, not renovate existing systems, but build the ideal platform, people process technology. Unfortunately, that was in 2008. Little thing like the financial crisis um, shifted, you know, priorities. I, I actually ended up coming back to the U.S. And I couldn't shake two things. One, the entrepreneurial desire. And two, the idea that there was a better platform for top quality advisors to serve clients. So I ultimately ended up leaving Morgan Stanley and joined Hightower, which was trying to, at the time, really redefine the independent space. It used to be that if you were independent, you could be a true fiduciary, serve your clients in that capacity, but you were going to sacrifice access to the most sophisticated capabilities, technology, tools. Hightower, we tried to change that, try to take wirehouse advisors, free them up from, you know, the shackles of, you know, wirehouse compliance and being managed to the lowest common denominator, but not force them to not have access to the best investments, the best technology capability. I was there as president and COO for um, seven and a half years, left to join Brofman Rothschild in 2017, 2019, we combined Brofman with Sontag Advisory, um, rebranded as Wellspire, and we took a $10 billion um, wealth management-focused RIA and have, and have grown it to you know, 25 billion, 350 people, 115 advisors across 24 locations throughout the U.S. over the last four years. So I love this space. I, I didn't start with any bias towards Wall Street, but I found in the specifically the wealth management space and the independent fiduciary RIA space, just a fertile ground that has been awesome for me from a career standpoint. Well, wow, I really feel like a slacker. <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is an incredible background for so many reasons. I mean, I love the fact how self-aware that you first of all, you wanted to give back at an early age, volunteered in the in the Bronx to be a teacher, which is such a selfless profession. My best friend was a teacher for many years and we talked a lot about, because I started in sales, how I was rewarded if I was really good. And no matter how good she was as a teacher, she was still considered, you know, kind of the same, like they were all treated the same to your, to your point, really self-aware to recognize that at that, at that age. And to be able to go work at Morgan Stanley for one of their top advisors. And then, as you said, move from, you know, kind of the front to the back office. But what an incredible journey and experience that allows you to really run the business that you're running now. Um, I, I love finding out how people got into this space, but also how you got into your role as a CEO. And, you know, several of the guests that I've had on have really started in an operations role. And I think you kind of have um, some of the best leaders that have a little bit of both that left side, uh, left side, right side brain. Um, 
And just just love that. And that entrepreneurial spirit, as you said, that's really what uh, a lot of this industry is based on right now. And that goes into, you know, my next question, which is, you know, a lot of what this podcast is about is around talking about what it needs to be, what you need to be successful now, but also in the future, as a lot of the dynamics are changing. Um, so what are some key areas that you're focused on at Wellspire to serve current and future clients. And I would also ask, is there anything that you've learned in that experience that you take with you every time you you do launch something at Wellspire? Yeah, great, great questions. You know, from from my perspective, I and mean, I think it, it starts with uh, a core element of our philosophy, which is the the foundational interaction of advisor with an end client, right? Our, our core is that deep trusted, you know, intimate dialogue that occurs. We lead with financial planning, but it starts with really understanding what matters most to a client, hopes, dreams, fears. And when you have kind of a client-centric model that's driven through advisors, the question becomes, well, how do you put more arrows in the quiver for those advisors to be able to have positive impact on the clients that they work with. Once they know what matters most to clients, can you give them all the capabilities that they require to actually create the outcomes to allow people to live a life of purpose, meaning fulfillment? So for us, you know, we, we are not we are never trying to insert ourselves between that trusted relationship between an advisor and an end client. It's how do we amplify that and support it. So we've got you know, a scaled 20-person investment team that does a great job of looking across all assets and finding world-class managers, putting them together, doing all the things that you'd expect. We've got in-house trust and estate attorneys. We've got in-house tax advisors that can get involved in really sophisticated situations and provide, you know, guidance and, and input. We're not doing tax prep yet, but we are providing that sophisticated Guidance. So for us, it's all about how do we make sure that advisors have leverage to optimize their time around highest and best use, which is going really deep with clients and finding clients that that they can serve in an impactful way. How do we actually do that? I mean, part of that is I think the secret sauce for us is we've got a great culture in which advisors don't view each other as competitors. They view each other as team members. So we've got advisors that have specializations in many specific areas. So advisors that are, you know, former trust and estate attorneys that work with multi-generational families, advisors that specialize in working with attorneys, doctors, business owners. We've got a dozen advisors that have CDFAs that work with women in transition, whether it's premature death of a spouse, you know, divorce, career change. So when you have an ecosphere, we have all these really capable, talented advisors with specialties and you're in an environment where they collaborate. They don't view somebody else, even though you got the same. And I, nothing against the large wirehouses, but you know, I've been in those models where you know you've you've been in a situation where advisor A, B, and C they might have the same logo on their vest, but they view each other as competitors. We're the antithesis of that. We've got an ecosphere where people want to give and receive knowledge, share their expertise, ultimately to allow advisors to serve clients in a more impactful way. So we're trying to build leverage in every area that can distract an advisor so they can focus more time and energy, really going deep with their clients, and then have access to all the resources, whether it's alternative investments, trust and estate capabilities, technology capabilities to ultimately drive outcomes and impact with clients. So you mentioned estate and uh, tax. 
And it's interesting because uh, there have been a number of surveys that have been out there within the last year where the biggest kind of disconnect that exists between what an advisor provides and what a client wants them to provide, those are two areas that there's the biggest gap, right? So how did you guys decide to focus in on some of those advanced planning areas? Because I think that there are still a lot of advisors that are, and firms that are looking to maybe want to provide that, but it's hard to do that in a scalable way. Yeah, I mean, great question. I think for us, it was pretty organic, right? You know, our our viewpoint is we never want clients to outgrow the firm and feel like they've got to go somewhere else to get the sophisticated guidance that they deserve and need. So, you know, early on, Howard Sontag, when he founded Sontag Advisory, one of our legacy organizations, established relationships with with great attorneys at some of the best New York law firms. And as those attorneys had success, complexity came in, right? Wealth creates complexity. So we developed, you know, because our clients were growing, the necessity to be able to offer sophisticated, multi-generational trust and estate guidance for clients that were dealing with taxable paying estates had multiple you know residents so if you look at our 25 billion in asset center management a little over 8 billion is what in, in what we call family office services relationships so these are typically multi-generational relationships taxable paying estates sophisticated families with unique needs so because we're the trusted first call that that the client makes you want to be able to deliver solutions. So, you know, at first you start leveraging outside attorneys. And then we made the decision that the expertise was so valuable, we wanted to bring trust and estate guidance in-house. So that was pretty um, formative for us. You know, we aren't authoring docs. There's still external trust and estate attorneys that ultimately will implement docs. But by the time the client gets to that place, we've provided so much guidance, coaching, input that they're going to get what they want um, more efficiently and effectively because of all the guidance that we've provided. That has expanded logically because we're working with families into, we host family governance meetings where the, the value we're bringing isn't just financial planning or trust and estate planning. It's actually helping families come together to say the values that matter to Gen 1, if that's not translating through to Gen 2 and Gen 3 through philanthropic philanthropic giving and other aspects of family governance, Gen 1's not happy. Great that they created this wealth, but they want to see that it's actually helping Gen 2, Gen 3, sometimes Gen 4 live lives of purpose, meaning, and fulfillment, right? So I think it's been a natural expansion of those capabilities. We're, We're in the process right now of building a de novo trust company. Um, historically, we've had a subset of advisors that have acted as individual trustee. Again, why? Because we're the trusted resource and the client is logically asking us to take on that responsibility. We see it as a natural evolution to go from individual trustee structures to a corporate trustee structure, but one in which we can control the client experience as opposed to outsourcing to a third party. And and that gets back to like, why do I why, why do I focus on driving incremental growth organically and inorganically um, within our organization? It's because 
we're in an arms race to deliver incremental capabilities to end clients. For a decade and a half, I've heard fee compression, fee compression, fee compression. It hasn't happened. What has actually happened is what you need to provide to clients and what clients expect you to provide has dramatically increased. So if you don't have those incremental capabilities and all you're providing is some basic financial planning and and model portfolios, you're not going to meet the expectations for clients today and certainly clients in the future. So we, we are constantly listening to our clients and our advisors guide us in terms of what incremental capabilities do they need to have to either free up their time. So we leverage technology like Bento Engine and Holistaplan and things that can, through technology, automate things an advisor could do. But by bringing technology to bear, it frees up time and energy for them to actually focus on going deeper with clients. And then it's the incremental capabilities that you have to be a generalist to some degree at this point as, a, as an advisor because comprehensive financial planning is so comprehensive. But we want to have an arsenal of incremental experts that you can bring into a relationship to really show the client that they're not just a client of an individual advisor, but the entire backing of the firm is there supporting that advisor and helping create the outcomes that matter to the client. Yeah, I think that's so smart. That estate planning piece, I think, is really critical. I was just having a conversation about this, and I'm going through, my husband and I are going through uh, uh, redoing our estate plan for a variety of reasons. And it's such a hassle. Nobody ever wants to do it. And, you know, how do you, how do you as the advisor facilitate that conversation? It's so critical. It's also, I would imagine, a great strategy to ensure that you keep the assets one once, G, uh, you, you know, your first, you know, the, primary client when they go to pass on and they they do the wealth transfer that you're already engaged with the with the children and and others in the family. So what, I think one of, the thing, one of the things that I'm very proud of is we have multiple relationships. We're work, working with three different generations. You know, we might have a very senior, deeply experienced advisor who originally incubated Gen 1 as a as a client. We have a different advisor working with Gen 2, in some instances, a third advisor working with Gen 3. And you're able to match up people that are at you know similar age points where they're going to resonate. You know, The same advisor that resonates with Gen 1 might not resonate with Gen 3, but those kind of multi-generational relationships I'm very proud of. And you know, I think it speaks to the collaborative culture we have and, and the fact that we're, we're investing so much in the development of advisor talent and getting them positioned to establish connectivity early with Gen 2 and Gen 3. Yeah, I love that. That's so smart. And um, is it is it only, I'm just curious about that, is it only age that they match up with? Um, no, no. Yeah, I mean, that that is a factor, but, you know, yeah. it's ultimately what's the right, you know, fit. And for someone, it might be completely different. Somebody wants a female advisor. Somebody wants one, someone in a different jurisdiction. Again, a lot of people will look at M&A. Why do you want to continue to expand and fill out the map? Well, Gen 1 might be New York-based, but the kids are now in Denver and Arizona and the West Coast. So when you have a national presence, you can actually meet clients where they are. And and while we live in a digital age, one of the consistent themes that that I believe is the human interaction is still incredibly important. And digital makes it a lot easier. You can do multiple meetings, but there's still a reason why people want to get together face-to-face in person. And that's that's client to you know advisor, and it's within families, right? I mean, we just passed Thanksgiving, whole bunch of people come together. Why do you do it? There's a difference when you 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 can FaceTime people, but when you're in the same you know room with people, it's different. 
especially when you're talking about, you know, your money, right? Like you want to have some kind of connection. And um, that is so smart. And you're right. Like even just whether it's where you're located, whether it's certain interests, what do you have in common? Um, Just like any relationship, right? So, and this is a, this is a significant relationship. Sometimes I think our industry doesn't, doesn't talk about that as much, how significant a relationship really it is between an advisor and their client. You're talking about their financial security. You know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty major. So those are, those are great bits of advice and a great way to grow and think about your business again for the future. You know, I love checking out the various um, guests' websites before I interview them. And I really loved how detailed and intentional you are about the importance of diversity and inclusion, so much so that there's a robust area dedicated on your website about it. And it really starts with asking the question, what if we didn't need a diversity statement to begin with? So can you talk about your philosophy around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging for your firm and your advice for other firm leaders on this topic? Yeah. First of all, I appreciate you doing the the background due diligence and looking at it. You know, it's something that um, was intentional and we're proud of, right? I I think when I think about how to describe our philosophy and approach, I think it starts with the idea that we don't have it all figured out and we don't have everything right. But, you know, we are learners and we want to encourage open dialogue so that we and others can do better. When we look at the industry, we're absolutely making progress, but not at the rate or to the order of magnitude that we need to, right? I go to conferences and it's still too middle-aged, white male dominated. And I've struggled with that. You and I have talked a little bit about this, like personally, because I want to be an advocate for change, but I also recognize that at, at first glance, I may look like I'm part of the problem. So the only way I know how to um, to actually make progress is to lean into it, have real dialogue. And, and we've been uh, purposeful about it. And I think things really accelerated coming out of some of the things that we experienced from a societal standpoint in the US. 2020, we had this groundswell of like people within Wellspire that said, look, we need to do more and we need to be operate with intent. And I give a ton of credit to people like Laura Berry, Crystal Cox, Emily Platt, Julie Penwell, people that helped us actually craft and take a position that says, this is what we stand for. And it started with diversity, equity, inclusion. We added belonging because I think that's the innately most human aspect, right? People want to belong and feel like there is real that real sense of belonging. So for us, you know, it's a journey of, of learning. We've kind of got three pillars that we're focused on. One is learning and training. How do we educate ourselves and others about all things diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging? And that is an endless journey, but we're purposeful about creating training opportunities, educational opportunities, internal and external. Um, we focus a lot of time and energy on hiring and sourcing. How do we actually, if we want the outcome to be a more diverse robust organization and industry, we've got to recruit um, a more diverse pool of talent into entry-level positions. So last summer, we had over 20 summer interns. Typically, candidates are coming out of undergraduate CFP programs. They have some inclination that they want to be advisors or operate in the advisory space. 
we're being purposeful and saying, well, we've had great success at these universities over multi-year, sometimes decades. We also need to find ways to get to new pockets of talent, whether that be HBCUs or other avenues. I mean, I look at myself, where did we start? I didn't come out of an undergraduate business program, CFP program. I was an English major, but I found an unbelievable career. So how do we find ways to get to be more open to um, a less boundaried way of thinking about the talent that we bring into the organization. So hiring and sourcing is a big piece for us. And the last is volunteering and philanthropy. You know, how do we demonstrate through our activities and our involvement in communities and organization, our commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. Now we, we, we are, um, deep into a multi-year sponsorship of a CFP diversity scholarship program, specifically trying to give you know, diverse candidates that may not have the economic means to get a CFP certification to accelerate them into that so they can get their, their foot in the, the door. Our advisors, I think we have close to, you know, over 100 CFPs within the organization. For us, it is a it is a benchmark we look for, right? So how do we get more people access to that. You know, we're working with organizations that can help us bring more talented, diverse candidates into the into the the mix. But ultimately, you know, we've got 20 plus people on a diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging committee. They're the ones from a grassroots standpoint generating more ways for us to drive impact within Wellspire, within our industry and the broader community. So, you know, it's it's definitely something I'm passionate about. And and part of the message on our website is is clear. Like while we have to do all this and we're committing to it, the end state should be that that, you know, equity is just the default, right? That, you know, we we, we have a vision that ultimately says the future should it, the default should be equity, inclusion, and belonging. They're normal. We don't have to actually spend explicit time creating it. You know, and we're we're far from that, but I know we're making progress every day. Yeah, no. And just even by, it sounds kind of, it sounds kind of general, but by writing something down publicly on your website where people can see, and you're proclaiming, this is what we're focused on. This is what we're doing by having a dedicated group, whether you're a small firm or a larger firm like yours, that is going to increase the chance that you actually do something, right? Because if you don't do anything, I think part of the problem sometimes is people have great intentions, but they don't know where to start. Um, or they may say they're going to do it, but it's not publicly written anywhere. And I think the more the more that we can be um, deliberate and public about what our intentions are, the higher the probability that things are going to actually get done and translate into action. Interestingly, the episode before this one, I interviewed two HBCU um, higher education professionals, from one from Hampton and one from Howard University, and with the with the goal of having them share, basically a little bit about their students what their students are looking for in an employer and what this industry, what wealth management needs to do in order to recruit that talent into the industry. And they explained some of the challenges. They explained some of the things that that firms can do right. I know that, you know, NFP, in which I think is your parent company, is a supporter of the Financial Alliance for Racial Equity in which supports a career career fairs at these at these HBCUs. So just different things like that. I think it, it's just 
But I think netting it down to what you said is being very intentional, deliberate, and making sure that there's people in place to implement some of these ideas. Because you can have all the ideas in the world. If if nobody's in charge of them or nothing, and nobody's in charge of implementing them, they don't get done. Yeah, um, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. And, you know, NFP is great. Pam Wheeler is doing fantastic things. And, and your fair is one example of something that we've been able to lean into in partnership with them. I think, you know, from, from my perspective, the other thing that we've taken a really hard look at is you have to create tangible, understandable career paths. Like, you know, more diverse candidates have to be able to look at an organization and see themselves. So we're very proud of the fact that we've got, you know, female leaders and our, our head of advisor technology, right? Our head of client um, client service, um, our head of marketing. When you look at our executive suite, we've been very good within our advisor population, the number of female advisors. So we take pride in that, but we also recognize that's just one element of diversity. And there's so many others where we've got to create situations where more diverse candidates look at a Wellspire and some of the other large, you know, and, and scaling RAs and smaller RAs, and they see themselves, right? And they see a path to success for them in it. And and I think that's a bigger issue. You know, we tend to get lumped into Wall Street and, you know, and the wealth management space is different. And, and I think when people start to understand you can wake up every day, have a huge tangible impact on the lives of clients you serve. This isn't big Wall Street greed. You know, this is human and it's real and it's um, tangible. So, you know, I, I think we're, we're trying to attack it with multiple prongs and NFP has been a great partner in helping us find more ways to, to do that. So one other thing that you mentioned was about the importance of leaving an impact. And again, that's also a big part of this podcast. And you have on your, your website, a community outreach section. And, you know, this giving back mindset is becoming a really important component in attracting next-gen talent to a firm, as well as attracting next-gen investors as clients. So was that a deliberate strategy or did it happen organically? And how has it impacted your business specifically? Yeah, great, great question. I think it's deliberate in the sense that it speaks to, you know, who we are and who our clients are, right? When you look at our our employees, our team members, and the clients we serve, you know, it, it goes beyond just creating wealth or preserving wealth or doing financial planning. It's, you know, our purpose is to serve others to make lives better. And, and that means not just impacting the lives of our clients, our people, but our communities. And I think we've taken the right approach, which is we don't try to say, okay, at the enterprise level, this is the charity we're going to sponsor in 2023. Like we are very decentralized in the sense that we want the folks in the Bay Area that came to us through the acquisition of Private Ocean who care passionately about the Marine Mammal Center to continue to do that. And Ben Kelly and his team in West Hartford, who've got a long track record with Habitat for Humanity or, you know, the Midwest, who's got a multi-year relationship with Feeding America. Like we embrace that local engagement where you can have an impact not only on your clients through everything that we do from a financial planning and a wealth management standpoint, but also through our philanthropic and volunteering engagement locally. So it's it's been very purposeful. But then we also do have some stuff at the enterprise level where advisor gives advisors give back as an organization that we've been able to partner with who, you know, it's all about taking advisors who've got unique competency and being able to help them provide guidance to people that maybe wouldn't be our typical clients, but are in need of 
of that. So, you know, for us, it, it is that combination of um, the DNA of really wanting to have impact um, on, on our clients translating through to impact in our local communities. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be critical for attracting the, you know, the next generation to your firm because they they look for that. Absolutely. Um, it's become way more important. And then to your point, like, think about the unique skill set that advisors have, what they can do to provide pro bono work to, you know, underserved communities or to veterans. And like, it's just such a gift. And they're, um, you know, whether it's the Foundation for Financial Planning, Advisors Give Back, yep. Savvy Ladies, there are all these places that advisors can go and really volunteer as little as, you know, an hour a, a month, but it can be a game-changing situation um, for for someone to be the recipient of their advice. Yeah. And- so I, I look at how do we remove the friction to make it easy for them to do it and continue to show and demonstrate that we're behind it. You know, we just added, you know, an extra day of um, time off specifically for volunteering, right? I mean, and, and and people need to see that and they need to see executives and office leaders and financial advisors allocating time because it also tangibly demonstrates like we're serious about it, right? We're not just saying it, but we really don't want you to take the time. No, we actually want you to do it uh, and we're going to celebrate it and we're going to socialize it. And to your point, putting it right smack dab on our on our website, you know, makes us accountable in a, in a different way and and I do think the next gen cares so much more about it. It's not just, you know, about a, a paycheck. They really want to understand are are your value values real and how is that actually showing up on a day to day basis. Yep. It goes back to that authenticity, just so, yeah. so critical. And again, it keeps coming up in all of my interviews that I'm doing on this podcast. So I can't believe it, but we are at our our last question. Um, and I always ask the same one with the title and theme of the podcast focused on the future in mind. What is your last line? What key takeaway do you want to leave our audience with? Yeah, great, great um, way to finish up. So, I, you know, I, I think for me, in a world that's increasingly focused on technology, artificial intelligence, every day you're constantly seeing articles about it. I think the most significant differentiator in the client experience and relationship between a financial advisor and a client is the personal human interaction. So to me, the goal is not to use technology to replace advisors. The optimal outcome is for technology to free up advisors to focus more time and energy on the highest and best use, which is to go really deep, drive intimate engagement with clients. So for me, in a world where technology is all the rage, I think the future of financial advice will be even more human and, and will continue to truly become advocates and guides for our clients by enabling them and empowering them to live lives of purpose, meaning, impact, and fulfillment. And that is human. So I think the future is more human. Yep. Oh, I love that. What a great, what, what and you're right, I'm, I feel like we're inundated with everything on AI but I think some of the things that AI is going to empower us to do will free us up to do more Absolutely. important things, which is um, exactly what you just said. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being my guest today and for sharing what is working for you and your firm as you look towards the future. You really provided some fantastic advice on and guidance on growth and impact 
and inclusion. I'm Suzanne Syracuse. Thanks for listening. And I hope this episode leaves you feeling even more excited to be focused on the future. Mm-hmm.